breaking news in Tampa. A body found tonight in the same Seminole Heights neighborhood where two murders took place last week. This is 51 Days of Terror, the Seminole Heights serial killings, a News Channel 8 investigation. We poured through hundreds of pages of documents and hours of interviews to shed light on the victims and the people at the center of the case, all to answer one of the biggest questions, why? I'm your host, Amanda Shavari. It's 8.01 p.m. on Thursday, October 19, 2017. Estelle Faria is headed to her home in Seminole Heights. She's in her car, driving down 15th Street North when she sees something lying on the side of the road, a body. She doesn't see anyone else around. No one is running or standing nearby. She keeps driving. Estelle gets home, about a one or two minute drive from where she sees the body. She changes her clothes. Then she heads back to the scene. When she gets there, it's 8.05 p.m. Her eyes weren't deceiving her. There's a body on the sidewalk. She can tell it's a boy, someone young. He's wearing a blue sleeveless shirt, running shorts, and sneakers. She believes he's about 16 years old. She's only off by a few years. She doesn't go near the body, not until law enforcement gets there. Police arrive about three minutes after Estelle returns to the scene, but they've been searching the neighborhood for the past few minutes. Before Estelle drove past the body on the side of the road, turns out they heard the gunshots while patrolling the neighborhood. This was the first time since Benjamin Mitchell's death they knew the killer was nearby. They have a body. Now they need to find the person who pulled the trigger. The neighborhood is basically put on lockdown. Police officers take over, scouring Seminole Heights on the ground and sending choppers in the sky. They also send out the canine team to search the area. They take the canine named Sniper east of the shooting scene, hoping he'll pick up a scent. But Sniper doesn't find anything. Law enforcement don't either. No tracks, no video showing the suspect, nothing. What they do realize is the body is in front of a home that they're familiar with. It's where Benjamin Mitchell lived. It's where his aunt and uncle still live. They weren't home at the time. They'd all gone out to dinner just minutes before the shooting. Here's Angelique Dupree again, Benjamin's cousin, we talked to in episode two. We were just standing in that driveway, just standing in that driveway. We rode from her house to downtown to eat. By the time we got seated to sit down, all our phones was going off. Around 8 p.m., Casimar Naiboa is getting worried. His son, Anthony, should be home by now. He was taking the bus from work. As time goes by, he continues to worry. He sees something on the TV about another body being found and goes up to the scene. All these lights, everything. And then I told the police, you know, my son is missing. You know, this is the name. case. Okay, you're hoping that. You're just, want, you're just hoping, like they told you, no, it's not him. This is the voice of Casimar Naiboa, Anthony's father. He'd be worried if any of his kids didn't come home on time and couldn't find them. But this is a little different with Anthony. He has autism. Anthony's high-functioning and pretty independent, but Casimar still worries about him, mostly that someone could take advantage of Anthony one day. At this moment, that worry is taking a back seat because his biggest fear is that the body lying in the road is Anthony's. Casimar talks to a couple of officers. They tell him the body is someone black. Casimar's family is from Puerto Rico. His skin is caramel color. 
but Anthony is a little darker. He tells police that. They take a report from him and his girlfriend, Maria Rodriguez. Casimar doesn't know it at the time, but the body is his son's. What's worse, he's already dead. Shot once in the head and pronounced dead at the scene. Although he doesn't know whose body police found, Casimar knows something isn't right. He goes home to wait for updates. So we keep waiting, you know, and um, we're already feeling something. Another car came in. So you knew right away that by the uniforms, different uniforms, they didn't need to say anything. They just say sorry. Just after midnight, the Naiboa family is told Anthony is dead. He was just 20 years old. It's more than a year later now, and just four days before Christmas. It's the second one Anthony's family will go through without him. We're at his father's home. There's a Christmas tree set up and lights. Under it is a Christmas gift for Anthony, wrapped in bright blue paper. In the corner of the living room is a bookcase. There are no books on it. It's a memorial to Anthony. There are pictures of him. Anthony at graduation. Anthony with his family. Stuffed animals. Mostly foxes, which Anthony loved but sometimes they put his favorite foods and drinks on it just to feel like he's still there. We talked to Casimar Naiboa in the dining area of his home. Casimar has short black hair and a goatee, so long it's braided right now. He has an accent, a sign of his Puerto Rican heritage. He's committed to keeping his son's memory alive so that no matter how hard the question is or how painful the memory is, he'll talk about it. He'll do whatever it takes to make sure Anthony isn't forgotten. Anthony was born in New York City. Casimar's entire family, his mother, siblings, cousins, have lived there for the past 40 years. Casimar, his wife and kids, lived in Manhattan and later moved to Far Rockaway in Queens. When Anthony was a toddler, his parents noticed he wasn't developing at the same rate as his older siblings had. We, we noticed, like, you know, Anthony wasn't that verbal, you know, communicating and... So, you know, like, we knew more or less something was not right. And um, so we took him to, you know, check up, check him up. And they say, like, they diagnosed him with autism. It wasn't easy for Anthony to find someone to play with as a kid. Other children didn't understand him. He wasn't very verbal. He'd walk off by himself sometimes. He sort of lived in his own world. Casimar says Anthony was lucky, though. He had four siblings, so there was always someone to play with him. Anthony and his siblings were close. You get a glimpse of their relationship in a video on his YouTube page. It starts out with Anthony holding the camera up to a shot of his face. He's in his bedroom, and the door is closed. Hi, I'm Anthony. Uh, I'm about to launch my first prank on, on my brother. He shows off a water balloon. He's going to throw it at his brother. The video cuts to a scene outside an apricot-colored house. There's a trampoline in the back and what looks like a stack of plastic bins. A couple of kids are dancing to music. There's Anthony's siblings, Karen and Tino. They're moving from side to side, waving their arms around, giggling the entire time. Anthony walks out with the balloon. Tino stops dancing and starts to run, but Karen holds him in place. Anthony steps up and hits his brother with the balloon. The kids can't stop laughing. It's such a wholesome moment. One they probably remember fondly now that Anthony's gone. When Anthony was 10 years old, the Naiboa family packed up and moved to Tampa, Florida. They felt like their kids would get a better education there. 
Because he had autism, Anthony was put in a class for students who had special instruction. He didn't like it. Anthony was bored, staying in the same class all day. He felt like he wasn't being challenged. Anthony told his father he was so far ahead in the class, he actually was helping the teacher with other students. When Anthony was in middle school, Casimar talked to his teacher. They made a plan for Anthony. He'd go to other classrooms for different subjects, and they'd make sure his schoolwork was more challenging. He could also go to the lunchroom alone. It worked for Anthony in middle school, but when he got to high school, he was back to square one, once again in the same room all day, and he wasn't being challenged with his work. The teacher called me, and that he was like, Anthony don't want to work, you don't want to do nothing, you know, he's mad, he, he'd say that's easy for him. Casimar proposed the same plan Anthony had in middle school. He told them to let Anthony attend other classes and give him a more challenging course load. Unlike the middle school experience, Casimar says teachers were more skeptical. He felt they didn't think Anthony could do it. Because they say he might be scared that he might look different. And then he might gonna sit back in the back, all the way in the back seat, hiding behind somebody and don't answer nothing. Casimar didn't think Anthony would completely open up to everyone in the classroom, although he didn't think he'd be a wallflower either, but it didn't matter. The most important thing to Casimar was that Anthony was learning. A few weeks after teachers agreed to allow Anthony to go into other classes, Casimar went to visit the school to see how Anthony was adjusting to the new schedule. The classroom have windows on the doors allowing Casimar to peek in and check on Anthony. The teacher say something, I look at the window to the class, and Anthony was raising his hand. By the next year, Anthony was in all general classes, no special instruction. But some of the courses weren't worth full credits, so he wouldn't have enough to graduate with a regular diploma. But Anthony wanted that. Unfortunately, the prognosis wasn't good. Anthony could end up in school for a few more years. He could be 21 years old by the time he could get it done. Anthony thought about it. He could still go to Hillsborough Community College without a regular diploma, but he wanted that diploma, so he decided to go for it. Around this time, Anthony's parents got a divorce. He split time between his parents, but mostly lived with his mom. She moved to a different school zone, so he had to switch schools. There were a lot of changes, but it didn't distract Anthony from his goal, getting his diploma. Casimar remembers the day Anthony told him the big news. And he told me, uh, Papa, I'm graduating. I'm graduating. You graduating? I know that. Next year? No. This year? He told me, this year? With regular diploma? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I was happy. You can see the pride in Casimar's face, hear it in his voice. His daughter, Karen, who's a year younger than Anthony, also graduated from high school that year. He has another son who just graduated from Tampa Tech last year. He's proud of them all, but they didn't have the same obstacles and hurdles to face as Anthony. Casimar knows a lot of kids with autism are bright and can finish high school, but he also knows it can be harder for them. He says Anthony didn't take the easy way. It's a running theme in Anthony's life, doing whatever it takes to reach his goals. When Anthony decided to delay college and get a job instead, he did it the same way he got through high school, with perseverance. There were a lot of roadblocks. Anthony had a hard time in interviews. He wouldn't make eye contact. He'd be looking up at the ceiling and laughing to himself. It's normal for someone with autism, but Casimar says the employers didn't understand it. So Anthony kept on applying to places, about 20 in total. Then he got his first job. He was a parking attendant. He was excited to start earning his own money and get more responsibility. A week after he started, Casimar went to Anthony's job to check up on him. 
and his son was taking charge. And he was telling people, like, you park here, you park here. Anthony park took his job seriously. He even moved back into his father's house full time because it was closer to work. One thing that Casimar lovingly remembers about his son is how much he hated being late. Anthony would sometimes leave hours before he had to be at work just to make sure he got there on time. He got laid off a year into the job. Anthony was one of the newer hires, so when it was time to make cuts, he ended up on the chopping block. It was stressful for him, and he was sad. He started sleeping all of the time. Casimar tried to lift his spirits. He told him everyone's been fired before, but you just have to bounce back from it. The pep talks didn't really work. The only thing that could pull Anthony out of his funk was music. He liked to produce tracks on his computer, mostly hip-hop beats. It took him a while on his laptop, which was more equipped for homework than producing music, but he made it work. James Firefox. James Firefox. James Firefox is what Anthony went by in the music world. He had a lot of fans. His SoundCloud account had almost 600 followers. Some of them left comments on his tracks praising his producing skills. For each track, he'd include a description of which artists he could imagine rapping to the beats, like J. Cole, Drake, and Travis Scott. Maybe he'd hope one day they'd hear his music, maybe invite him to the studio to record a few tracks. It's a big dream, one Anthony didn't get to achieve. After a while, Anthony got another job, this time at a warehouse working to bring in supplies for Hurricane Maria victims in Puerto Rico. He'd bring in pallets of food from trucks which were then separated and shipped to the island. This was the first job where he was interacting with his coworkers, and he loved it. He'd go up to his boss every day and give her a hug, something she told Casimar she now misses. When he got his first paycheck, Anthony didn't save it up to get a better computer to produce music or to go spend it on a box season set of one of his favorite shows like Family Guy or Rick and Morty. He used it to take his father's girlfriend, Maria, out to dinner. He was happy about his paycheck. Um... He wanted to take me out. I had told him, no, save your money. You know, you need it. And he's like, no, I want to take you out to eat. So I'm like, okay. And he was like, let's go to the restaurant where daddy usually takes you. So I'm like, okay. So we went. It was a Chinese buffet. I had a recording on it, and he had told me the reasons why he did it. And to this day, it's still in my heart if I think about it. Um, He basically had told me, which... My husband and the kids know, and some of my family members, um, that the reason why he took me out to eat was because he thanked me a lot for everything that I've done in the time that he was with us. Um, basically, I would take time out from what I was doing or drop everything to help him, um, whether if it was appointments, job interviews, um, just to talk to me if he had a little situation or problem. He said I was always there for him and that he loved that about me and obviously me. I told him that I loved him as if he was my own child. This is Maria Rodriguez. She only knew Anthony for about a year, but they were close. Maria is technically Casimar's girlfriend, but they refer to each other as husband and wife. She called Anthony her sunshine. The loss of that light has hit her hard. We both clicked immediately. Like it was a bond 
basically let's just say he will call me first before he call his dad and I'll be like uh did you call your dad first no I wanted to call you first so like okay fine the night Anthony was murdered he called Maria it was 724 at night he told her he was taking a different bus home we need to be clear about something here a lot of the early reports said he had gotten on the wrong bus but Casimar says that's not true it wasn't his usual bus, but it was the only one available that night that had a stop near their neighborhood. Anthony knew where he was going. When Anthony was late getting home, Maria tried to call him a few more times. No answer. A few hours later, they found out why. That night, the family didn't sleep. They were in a real-life nightmare, trying to come to terms with Anthony's death. After a few hours in the house, Casimar and Maria left. There was something they needed to see. At this time, Police Chief Brian Dugan was standing at the scene of Anthony's murder. Every day during the investigation, he'd start out by going to the crime scenes. He would go in order that it happened. So this morning, he started at Benjamin Mitchell, then Monica Hoffa, then Anthony Niboa. Here's Chief Dugan. I was standing there at the, at the where, where Anthony just laid on the sidewalk just hours earlier. And a man and woman came down the sidewalk and I started talking to them and I introduced myself as the chief of police. And he says, yes, I know who you are. The man says, I know who you are. I said, I saw you on TV last night. And he said, that was my son that was murdered. And I was speechless and he wanted to know where his son was killed. And I pointed to the ground and I showed him, we, we do the best we can of of cleaning up crime scenes, but the the sand that was on the sidewalk between the cracks of the sidewalk still had the blood, blood stains in them. And so I showed him the blood stained sand where his son just laid hours earlier. And that Casimar was remembers the moment. It is so vivid in his mind that when we ask about it, it's like he's transported back to October 20th. He turns his head and looks down at the floor as if he's looking at the blood stained cement once again probably the moment he really accepted for the first time that his son was gone. He starts crying as he recalls the worst day of his life. Look at, and I look at my son's blood. I look at my son's blood, lying on the floor. Oh, his blood, something out of nightmare. I'm looking at his blood, my, my kid's blood on the floor there. Looking at his blood, touching it. It's a moment that changed both of their lives. Casimar realized his son was never coming home, and Chief Dugan started looking at the investigation in a whole new light. It's an emotional moment for me. It's something that I take with me. It's, you know, I still think about it like it was yesterday. And that's when it really became personal for me. The family came back to the scene later and picked up Anthony's glasses. They're now sitting on a bookshelf memorializing him. It's one of the ways they keep his legacy alive. They've also started a foundation. So far, it's helped buy some students' computers, and in the future, the family wants to help kids with autism. Casimar is also working with friends of Anthony's that he made through his love of music to find more ways to honor him. Casimar carries a lot of guilt with him now. He knows Anthony's death isn't his fault, but he can't stop wondering if he did all he could. Uh, you ask yourself, you know, sometimes I blame myself. I say, you know, when he called me, because many times I look for him, you know, we, he was on the other side of town, you know, and he's goodness, you know, he's trying to push the time back. 
It feels like that's almost what we've been doing for hours, allowing Casimir to go back in time and reminisce about Anthony. We can't blame him for wanting to talk about his son. Anthony seems like a great kid. He was determined, talented, funny, and kind. In the days after our interview, Casimir sent us a few texts, photos of Anthony, alone and with his family. One shows him in a cap and gown on graduation day, a medal dangling from his neck. He sends us a video of Anthony and Maria dancing at a club in Ybor City. Anthony loved to dance. He and Maria are both wearing wide smiles as they move from side to side, Anthony spinning her around a few times. This is back when he was still a parking attendant, so he's still wearing his uniform, a neon shirt with reflective stripes on it. Anthony would get off work at 2 a.m., and Casimir would convince the club to let them in after closing so Anthony could dance for a few minutes. They loved those special nights. Casimir also sends us a memory from a few days before Anthony died. Casimir was away from home working, and Anthony called. He asked when Casimir was coming home. He told Anthony he'd be back on Sunday. Anthony told his father he loved and missed him. It was the first time Anthony had ever said that to him. They always smile. People that know him always smile. Easy going. Anthony never argued. He never, I never seen him argue with Sometimes they, he got mad because they pick on him. You know, like, they make a jokes. But he never, I never see him, you know, cursing, nothing. You know, beautiful kid, beautiful kid. You know, Anthony is a cool kid. You know, that he don't deserve, you know, just dying in the street like that for no reason. You know, Anthony had a lot of dreams. Day 12, the stakes rise. Crime Stoppers of Tampa Bay team up with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives to offer a $25,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest of the killer. But it would still be 39 more days with another murder in between before police find the suspect. Maybe because it's someone no one ever suspected. Next on 51 Days of Terror, tracking every little thing you can possibly think of to see if is there a pattern is there a trend you guys go hunt him down and bring his bring his head to me it was the loneliest time of my life you're screwing with the wrong person and we're going to hunt you down until we find you 51 days of terror is hosted by me amanda shivari it is written and executive produced by brianti downing kelly hatton is our associate producer Editing by Dallas Cotton. Heather Monahan is our digital producer. Tim Price is our digital editor. Additional reporting done by Brianti Downing and me. Thank you to everyone who talked to us about the investigation and especially the victims. We're honored to tell their stories.